Welcome into the Oxen Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, Jerry Mack on the show today. Mailbag Monday, uh, or whenever you're listening to it, it's just a mailbag edition of the podcast. A lot of good questions, and um, we're in that that spot, Eric and Jared, where we're talking football, but we're also bleeding over into basketball. And I think part of that is because, hey, look, both the men and the women are actually playing pretty good now when last month or so couldn't say that. It was really a bleak time for Oregon athletics there in like the month of December to early January. It was like nothing, none of the teams were playing well. There was all sorts of chaos for football with coaching. Um, men and women's teams were just losing left and right. And, and now in the last week, and we recorded this a few hours before Oregon's going to tip off against UConn on the women's side. Um, you could, we could have four wins by the men and women's teams over top 10 ranked teams in the last, what, four days. Yeah. So pretty fun times there. Yeah. As Matt said, we're going to split it. We're going to start with some football recruiting, get into some team football, and then we're going to close with a couple questions on the basketball stuff. So, um, a little bit more of a variance in topics today, but that's to be expected. As Matt said, we're kind of moving to that point of the year where basketball is becoming a, a focal point and that's fun for us love covering those teams, but there's still going to be a lot of football talk because Dan Lanning is hitting the recruiting trail and signing day is a couple weeks away. So it's going to be uh, kind of a fun couple weeks. So we're going to start with recruiting, but we're not focused on the 2022 class. We're going to start with some 23 questions to open from at quack attack 74. What are some of the top tier players that Oregon has a good shot to land in the 2023 recruiting class? Hashtag odds and audibles, by the way, I think everybody used the hashtag to do so good on good on you. And, and that, that doesn't mean I won't, Ask your question if you don't use it, but it does help. Um, Matt, like I, I don't know how many you want to run through because we want to keep this a fairly reasonable show, and this is the 23 class and you're early, but I'm sure you've got dozens of names, but let's try to keep it somewhat time-sensitive here. Sure. Not well, minutes. <laughs> I, I think your first question is let's look internally in the state of Oregon, and there's one name that Oregon's in a really good spot with for, and that's Riley Williams, who's – the sixth best tight end in the country. And he's almost a top 100 player, 6'6", 230 pounds. His older brother just finished up a career at Oregon as a walk-on. Um, he, he plays for a high school that's produced plenty of Oregon players in the past, most recently Brady Breeze, Lamar Winston. Um, go back a couple of years, Alex Balducci um, played there as well. So that would be my first response. Well, let's look and turn inside the state. And then regionally and in the Pacific Northwest, there's a couple guys. Uh, Jaden Lamar is uh, a four-star running back from the Washington area, Seattle. Um, he's going to be on campus later. Um, and then you have Jaden Wayne, who's a five-star uh, defensive lineman from the Tacoma area. He was actually on campus this past weekend uh, for an unofficial visit. Um, so those are those are three names, I think, just regionally that Oregon is in a really good position with. Offensive tackle Spencer Fanu was a guy that, that's been on campus multiple times. He's from Utah. Uh, Oregon is in a really good spot there for him as well. Um, and then you want to look at quarterbacks, and, and Oregon's got quite a bit. Uh, of, of options that they could go after here. Um, I, there's probably four or five guys that they are in a good position with 
um, to go after. And it's now just pick. Um, most recently, Anthony Johnson was a four-star quarterback from Kansas. He was on campus this past weekend as well. So um, there are a lot of names. Um, there will be more names that, that will emerge most definitely um, across the board uh, on offense, on defense, um, that, that Oregon will, will, will go after um, and try and get. And we should already know that they've already got one commit, Cole Martin. Um, a four-star player from the state of Arizona at Basha High School in Chandler, Arizona. Well, and it's we should know that's the son of an Oregon assistant coach. And there's another mm-hmm. actual offer that went out on Saturday to a, another. We talked in-state. Uh, Tatum Tuioti, the son of defensive line coach Tony Tuioti, also was offered. He's going to play his high school ball at, at where Matt went to high school, which is Sheldon. So an opportunity to see him up close and personal. Um, he, he received an Oregon, Oregon offer on Saturday, previously been offered by Nebraska and Washington and you know Kansas State, several schools like that. So this is a, a pretty high-end prospect, like a high three-star, not quite four-star guy. So certainly some names to know um, there. And I, I think the 23 class is going to be interesting because we kind of have to reset the board a little bit um, because the previous staff, obviously, there, there are guys that are like, you're going to recruit regardless just because they're top guys out West and the previous staff has done a good job of, I guess, assessing that. I think there's also guys that the new staff will come in and build relationships with that maybe we're not as familiar with. And that's yeah. what's kind of interesting to see develop here over the next couple of weeks and months is I think even in the 2022 class, there's a, a certain prospects Oregon wasn't maybe in on that they've kind of entered the picture for late here because of the new staff and kind of relationships there. So there could be names. This list for 23 is going to grow, I think, quite a bit over the next couple of weeks as we see uh, kind of how the staff sort of shakes out in terms of how they want to approach this and who they like and, and all of that. So we're going to be kind of this list will be growing, I think, over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I, I mean, Lanning talked about that in his in his office, his first offseason press conference where he, he said that he didn't want to come in with preconceived notions about the players on his team. I also feel like that translates into the recruiting trail as well. Um, the previous staff did an excellent job in, in finding and develop or finding talent and on the West Coast. And what I'm most excited for is to see what Lanning and his staff, which has a lot of Southeastern recruiters, what they look like on the recruiting trail in the Southeast. Um, obviously, it's going to be really important for Oregon to set their set their culture and establish themselves as a West Coast recruiting power, as they have in the last few years, uh, especially with USC coming to fruition. And uh, you always have talent on the West Coast, whether it be from California or Oregon or Washington. Uh, Arizona has been a hotbed, too, recently for across-the-country teams. But I'm, I think that's what I'm most interested in seeing. And the class of 23 is where we're going to really begin to dive into what they could possibly do. Um, it's just too late for the class of 22. Uh, Oregon might be able to sign somebody from one of those southeastern states just because they didn't enroll at wherever they were committed to. Um, that we'll find out in a couple of weeks in National Signing Day. But the, the class of 23 has a lot of top-tier talent, obviously, um, and a lot of that comes on the West Coast. But um, with Lanning and Tosh Lupoy's connections like down in the Southeast, I think that's what I'm most excited for to see you know, who they can pull and what type, of, what type of performance an SEC body of players would – you know, perform in the, in the Pac-12 and see how that works. Um, that could be a significant advantage for Oregon if they are able to pull more kids from that area. Um, it could turn out to mean absolutely nothing. But uh, the class of 23 is where we're going to find that out. Um, it, it just overall, in terms of top tier guys, um, I think the, the biggest name 
Uh, Riley Williams, obviously, is one of them, but I think for me it's Jaden Wayne, the defensive end out of Washington. Um, he's been to, he's been on campus uh, a handful of times. Um, Oregon was actually the first school to offer him a couple of years ago at the SNL camp. Um, yeah. So he's, he's been around here a while, yeah. Yeah, he's had a lot of unofficial visits um, with the new staff. We'll get another official visit. Um, I think that's priority number one for Oregon in terms of recruiting. Um, Washington has had a, a lot of talent in the, the Seattle area that has not stayed in state. Um, I think Wayne has one current crystal ball, which is a projection of Miami, which is a confidence of one. So I think that's just an early, early swing and maybe a miss. Um, I, I think Washington will obviously pull on, put on the full court press for him, just like they did for JT to Amale and Emeka Ekbuka. Um, but those are, those are two examples of guys who weren't afraid to leave the state to go where it's best suits them. Um, and whether Wayne leaves for Oregon or Wayne leaves for Miami or I, I don't know, Texas A&M, who knows? But I think he's the, the number one guy. If you could have a wish list of 2023 right now for Oregon, um, uh, he, I think he could, and he's a defensive mind is he's a defensive end. So, and playing for a defensive coach with um, a defensive coordinator who coaches D line, who's an excellent recruiter is definitely an advantage for Oregon to have right now and should be going forward. We should note that a lot of what 2023 will look like probably won't, we won't probably have a good idea of just the sheer numbers on mm-hmm. probably for four or five more months. I mean, Oregon probably is going to have to operate with a lot of, with the ability to be pretty fluid here. Um, have, oh, yeah. try and sign as many guys, take as many commitments as you can, but also be prepared that, that that number may have to get chopped down because right now there are 11 guys on this roster that'll be a senior in 2022. Um, they have by our count five available scholarships to use at their disposal right now. So they could, they could sign five guys this off season. Let's say five high school players, but that doesn't increase the level, the number of, of seniors on this team. They could go out and they could add five seniors uh, to this team or five guys that will play just one year of, of college football at Oregon. And that could then explode to 16 scholarship numbers. And then there's a bunch of underclassmen, um, Jamal Hill, uh, Mace Funa, Brandon Dorless, Stephen Jones. What do these guys do um, when they finish 2022? Do they go pro um, or do they come back for what would be their fifth year of college football? And same things for uh, Dante Manning, Noah Sewell, uh, Justin Flo. Uh, there's a couple others out there that I'm missing. Uh, Byron Cardwell, or not not Byron Cardwell, sorry. Um, Keon Ware Hudson. There, there's a couple other sophomores that are going to be fourth-year sophomores or third-year sophomores in 2022 that would be draft-eligible Um after next season and how many of those guys go pro, which could then increase this number up to closer to its full 25. Because of the COVID year, I don't know if people still understand it. There's like continuing to be lasting implications of that because like what Matt is saying is true is like, there's guys who are on the roster. They say they're one year, but they really have like, they've been around longer than that. You know that. Yeah. So it's like, it's hard to kind of sometimes do the scholarship math of like, Okay, in theory, they've been here three years, but they're like Sewell's going to be a sophomore technically, even though he's played 
every I think every single one of Oregon's games the last two years, but one of the years just didn't count. So he he will in I would think in likely go pro after, but in theory he would still if he wants to return have two more seasons. So it's like one of those things where it's just funky to figure out. So I'm <laughs> it's That's so weird. <laughs> to kind of figure some of this out. So all right, next one from at Austin seven zero one two one zero five zero eight by the way last time we did a mailbag i actually properly uh guessed what the significance of the uh the 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 twitter handle was i don't know if i can do that for this one because this one does not look like a a birthday this looks like uh i uh, maybe a cell phone number if that something like that anyway austin wants to know which one of the uh, four quarterback targets in the 23 class are we most likely to land? And he does use the hashtag odds and audibles. Um, Matt, you did mention Oregon is in on some high-end quarterbacks. Avery Johnson was out here recently. Um, there's a couple of other names that are big-time prospects Oregon is in on. Do we? Is it too early to have a feel for who they most – are they most likely to land? Or, yeah. Or, or kind of where you're, where are you at with that position right now? Yeah, I, I think it's too early to – to come out and say that Oregon is in a position where you feel confident they're going to land one of these four. And it's, I'm assuming he's talking about Pierce Clarkson, who's a four-star quarterback from St. John Bosco, uh, Jaden Rashada, who's a four-star quarterback from Pittsburgh in California. Uh, and then you also have Nicholas Iamalave uh, from, from Downey, California. He's a five-star uh, and then after that, you could be talking about uh, Kabari Johnson, who's a four-star from from Lincoln in uh, Tacoma, or maybe you're also talking about Javon's uh, Tupoata Johnson. I'm just going to butcher that. Uh, <laughs> who's a three-star from West Hills, California? Um, I, I I think you have to throw Avery Johnson in there as well. I mean, the fact that he paid his way this early to come to Eugene is pretty significant. Um, I, I would be surprised if they land a quarterback that's not in that mix of names. Um, but to sit here and say that there's one guy that leads above the rest right now feels more like a guess that you could go back and then claim that you were right when you were just kind of guessing. Yeah, it's so early. And again, I, I do think we have to acknowledge the new staff part makes this a little difficult because like these offers were made to most of these kids by the previous staff. Yeah. And I'm sure like most of those names are takes because those are the best guys out West. There's, and we should know that sounds like I think it's a pretty high end class for quarterbacks out West in 2023. I mean, there, there's mm -hmm. a lot of top 150 kids in the Southern California area. There's some top kids up in Washington as well. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. I think it, if Oregon's able to get one of those guys – Almost regardless, they're getting a high-end player, a capable player. And what what I think will be interesting to kind of track here um, is stylistically, and this maybe kind of gets us to the next couple of questions, but stylistically, what does Kenny Dillingham want out of a quarterback? Um, yeah. What what kind of priorities? And, and, and some of this will be, what what is the offense going to be? Um, are you going to rely on an offense? Like we just saw a couple of years here where Anthony Brown and Tyler Shuck were asked to run the ball quite a bit. How much of that are we going to see? Are we going to see some RPO stuff out of Dillingham? I know we've seen a little of that in the past. Um, is, is there a fit at quarterback with some of the names that we've just mentioned in 23 for that? Um, are you going to see a, a shift at all? I mean, these are the questions we're asking right now, and I know we're going to get to questions asking us kind of like what specifically Kenny Dillingham's offense is going to look like at Oregon, and I think there's some questions on it. So I'm kind of hedging that part right now, but 
I do think we're going to learn some of these answers based upon kind of what they look for at quarterback. So um, mm-hmm. that'll be kind of another, another component of the quarterback position in 23. I'll be curious for is just uh, how does it fit Dillingham's offense and maybe what does it say about what he looks for in a quarterback? Uh, yeah, this is a really talented West Coast group of quarterbacks. Um, a lot of high four stars, a five star, uh, just some, some quality players across the board. Um, Matt, like you said, uh, Avery Johnson, like paying his way out early. And, and or this early in the recruiting cycle is pretty interesting. Twenty four seven Sports has, has Dillingham listed as his primary recruiter when he was at Florida State, um, so that's already an established connection. Um, and and Johnson is a top one hundred fifty quarterback ranked by twenty four seven Sports. Um, there's certainly uh, Oregon is certainly going after some, some big fish. There hasn't been a, this uh, overall change in philosophy from from Cristobal and his staff where. You know they they do want to try to acquire the best type of talent that they can, and the offers still go out. And, and as Eric mentioned, a lot of these offers were from the previous staff, and and the new staff is just taking over. And and you know, a lot of times recruits say reoffering. I don't really think that's a thing, but they are you know reestablishing connections with these players, and Oregon is reestablishing connections with these big time players because that's what they believe will help them get to a, a, a different level. Um, Lanning said in his press conference that, um, you know, players make coaches great and great players make great coaches. So these these are potential great players. Um, they're ranked this highly for a reason. Um, but it's still obviously it's too early in the class 23 cycle to really tell where people are going to, to end up. Um, a lot of players, a lot of the high star players like to finish their recruiting cycles before, usually before playoffs, before even the season starts in their senior year. So this could all develop rather quickly um, and having previous relationships like Avery Johnson and Kenny Dillingham is, is a big help for Oregon. Um, that can also go uh, another way where you could have previous relationships, like how um, a lot of players who now are committed to USC had previous relationships with, with uh, Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma. Um, so these are all things to watch for in the class 23. Um, but like Eric was talking about, I'm really interested to see, who specifically like Dillingham uh, kind of hones in on as a quarterback? Because we've kind of seen the the change in philosophies. I kind of I feel like in terms of quarterback styles from um, like Joe Moorhead and the previous regime. Um, but so far, there's no clear indicators on what a quarterback will have or, or what Oregon is going to want to see them have. Um, the talent, I guess, like on paper talent is a clear one, but that's pretty easy. And this is still, you know, a long transition for, for this new Oregon staff that they're, you know, just hitting the recruiting road now. Um, so it'll be interesting to see and then kind of follow who who's being offered recently in this week in terms of quarterback cycles. All right. We're going to move on to two questions, which uh, I think are looking for specific answers, but we're going to be kind of speak about them without knowing exactly what the answers are, but I think these are fun philosophical discussions just about what this new staff is going to try to do. Um, so I admit, like, we don't have full answers to this, uh, you know, because these are these are topics that haven't been breached, basically. We've had very little time to speak with the new staff. We haven't spoken on record with anybody besides Landing. So um, that's I'm just giving that before we jump into this. From at Prince Puddles, how much of an influence will Dan Landing have on an overall off, a scheme of the offense, or will he simply hand over the offense to coach Dillingham. Cristobal had a big influence over the overall scheme of the offense. 
with more of a power run than what the offensive coordinators had had before, hashtag odds and audibles. Um, the second part was his assessment of Cristobal, which I actually think is pretty pretty accurate. I think there's there's some truth to that in terms of I think he was he was pretty involved in in what you were doing offensively, in part because he was a coach with an offensive background. Um, you know, and I think that's where I wanted to start in differentiating here. And again, as I said before we even got into the question, I read it. There's no full clarity yet of this answer, nor would I expect Dan Lanning to come out and, and really communicate exactly what that dynamic is yet. Um, maybe until we get into spring and fall football of how impactful and how involved he wants to be in offensive game planning. My expectation is it's not, it's not very much. Um, you know, Dan Lanning is a defensive coach. He's a very, very high end defensive game planner. Um, coach Dillingham has experience as an offensive game planner, as, as somebody who helps build game plans as an offensive coordinator. I know we've, the talk is he hasn't been a play caller. So that, that part is, but that part is different. You know, I mean, in terms of get, calling a play, every calling every play of a game is different than game planning. So um, I don't doubt Dillingham's ability to do that. Um, I don't anticipate Landing will want to overstep too much. In fact, you look at the schools that he's kind of been brought up at, both Georgia and Alabama, those are two defensive-minded head coaches, which is where he kind of falls in line with. And both of them kind of give, I don't want to say full reign to the offensive coordinators, but they give quite a bit of leash and kind of let them do their thing, um, which is why you've seen, I think, both schools evolve and change philosophically on on offense under both Kirby Smart at Georgia and Nick Saban at Alabama. Those Both those teams, you look what the offense have done, they've shifted with who's ever been in leadership positions at offense. And I think that's what you'll see with Lanning. And again, I say this without Dan Lanning having said it on the record, without hearing it necessarily even off the record, but just my expectation is Dan Lanning is going to say, Coach Dillingham, this is this is your baby. You go take care of this. This is this is your part of the ball. I'm going to take care of the defense. We've got a bunch of guys here to take care of special teams, but you're, mm-hmm. you're focused on offense. And I think you even saw a little bit of that with the um, hires that were made. The defensive hires, you go look at the guys they hired defensively. A lot of those people are people Dan Lanning has worked with or has some sort of connection to. The offensive staff, you look at, a lot of those are guys that maybe Dillingham had a little bit of a previous relationship. Not a lot, but a couple of them. Like I thought Coach Lachlan is somebody he's worked with at Florida State. Obviously, he had a say in bringing him over. Um, so I, I, I just look at this and think I'm expecting Dillingham's going to have quite a bit of autonomy to kind of run this offense and make this offense what he wants it to be. I don't anticipate landing as meddling too much. That doesn't mean he won't have any say, but my expectation is this is Dillingham's baby and, and landing is pretty comfortable with that. I, I don't think we know what this offense will look like um, yet. And the oversight that landing has, like I'm sure he's got some kind of idea that, Hey, I want us to be known to, to have a power run game and fear, you know, you fear our running backs and you, you feel our, our playmaking ability on the outside at the skill positions, but that doesn't, it doesn't pigeonhole you in any kind of system um, that you want to run on offense. And like Eric said, that will be Kenny Dillingham's responsibility as the offensive coordinator and the QB coach. Um, so I, I know everyone wants, and it's kind of a weird time because this is the first time since Rich Brooks was hired that Oregon hired a defensive-minded coach. And offense is always going to be the thing that everyone gravitates towards or, or most people will gravitate towards first. And we just don't know. Oregon has hired a coach that, in Kenny Dillingham that doesn't have 
his own personal system that that he has run or, or like, it wasn't like a chip kelly where he had this blur offense that he was running at new hampshire or like a joe moorhead who had his own sophisticated spread and this is kenny dillingham's opportunity to create that system of what he wants to be known for and it's just we just don't know what it's going to look like right now yeah i've so i've been on record for saying that i'm a I'm a fan of when a staff is comprised of like a CEO head coach, a separate offensive coordinator and a separate defensive coordinator. Um, I don't know that to me, that's just like how an NFL kind of model is. That's how Saban has run it at Alabama. That's how Kirby smart is kind of doing it at Georgia. And I think those, those ways kind of win. This is my second favorite type where the head coach is defensive minded and he just does nothing with the offense and just says here, whoever you are, take control, do your thing. Um, Because for some reason, I find that in terms of, of, of team success on offense, when a head coach just leaves it up to the offensive coordinator, things run a little more smoothly rather than when a defensive head coach and a defensive coordinator work together. I just feel like there's more of an opportunity to find the same common ground on a defensive ideology rather than on an offensive ideology. And whether I'm just talking out of my butt or I actually have you know, knowledge about this is yet to be remained or yet to be seen. Um, we'll find out eventually with Oregon staff. But to me, from a very general perspective, I don't feel like Lanning is going to be involved with the offense at all. Um, and I think that's probably for the better. Uh, I can tell you he will be vol- involved in offensive recruiting. Um, I talked to uh, four-star offensive tackle Miles McVay the other day, um, whose primary recruiter is Adrian Clem, but he told me that every time that Adrian Clem is on the call, uh, so is Dan Lanning. So he's somebody who's going to be uh, helping out offensive recruiting, that's for sure. But other than that, in terms of play calling, uh, scheme, ideas, I don't think he's going to be in Kenny Dillingham's pocket like how maybe Mario Cristobal was with his offensive coordinators. Um, and whether Mario was truly involved that much with his offensive coordinators, we'll probably not know. Um, it certainly seemed like it at points, and maybe there are plenty of plays over the course of a season that point to that direction. Um, but I don't anticipate that happening with Lanning. Um, I anticipate it to be how, I, honestly, it's to be how Georgia was ran with Kirby Smart, as a really defensive-minded head coach who was a former D.C. at Alabama for six to eight years, I can't remember which it was, um, who helps control the defensive side of the ball. And he knows a good offense from a bad offense because he coaches defense, so he knows what will work and what won't work. So he, I, w- I would imagine that Lanning has some sort of perspective on what he wants his offense at Oregon to look like. And I would imagine that – view that viewpoint of what his offense wants to look like is a primary reason as to why he hired Dillingham as the offensive coordinator role, because his offense, his relationship with Dillingham, that all feeds into what he uh, anticipates Oregon's offense to look like this upcoming season. And we don't know what that'll look like. Um, We have clips of, of Dillingham's work at Auburn and Florida state. um, But he wasn't the primary play caller. Uh, He learned under Mike Norvell at multiple stops, including Memphis with, with Dan Lanning, um, who's an excellent offensive coordinator and offensive mind. So it'll be, it'll be a work in progress, but I'm super excited to see 
where Landon goes on the field when spring practices roll around because Crystal Ball was always with the offensive line and on the offensive side of the field. Not always, but for the most part, because that was his position group. That was his, you know, his style. It was an offensive-minded head coach. So I'm assuming Lanning is going to be on the defensive side and just let Dillingham roam free. So I'm excited to watch that. Um, but yeah, I would overall, I would anticipate Lanning just letting the offense go. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I should also note just that <clears> – <throat> The first, the two first hires that were made were were Kenny Dillingham and Matt Powledge in terms of assistant coaches, and those were made almost instantaneous to Dan Lanning's hire. I think it's mm-hmm. very notable. Those are clearly guys he wanted here and prioritized here, and has confidence in their vision for what their roles are because these are two of the higher, in terms of responsibilities. You know, Dillingham runs the offense, and Powledge is co-defensive coordinator. Those are two positions you don't just hand out. You know, you don't hand those out early without knowing and feeling confident in the guys. So I think that part should play a role. I think clearly Dillingham has a vote of confidence from Lanning, which is obvious. He's his offensive coordinator, and you don't bring him out here if you have any, if you want to get in the way and meddle with him. Yeah. Wants to let him do his right. thing. So, um, yeah. Put that concern to rest. All right, the next one from at Smucker underscore Ben. Looking at George's depth chart, Lanning seems to like big defensive linemen, and he put in uh, parentheses all 280-plus, most over 300 pounds, and fast linebackers, 225 to 240 pounds. What do you think Lanning does with with Oregon's tweeners like Mace Funa, Trevin Maai, Jake Shipley, Braden Swinson, and maybe even DJ Johnson, who are all 255 to 270? Um, I think this is an interesting question, right? And again, as I said, I kind of prefaced it earlier. I don't have any, a clear answer here. Um, Sorry, the, the staff is being established. We have not seen spring practice. We have not heard from Dan Landing one way or the other on this. Um, I do think this is notable, though, and he's not wrong in terms of the way Georgia constructed its defense. It's possible Dan Landing has. I don't. I wish you know. I don't necessarily know if Dan Landing is necessarily bringing the Georgia defense to Oregon. I think he's bringing. He's going to develop his own defense, and maybe there'll be some alterations there personnel-wise in terms of how they want to employ packages. But I, I will also say, like. DJ Johnson isn't that far off from being somebody who could put a hand in the dart and play as a defensive lineman. In fact, two years ago, that's exactly what he was doing in 2019. Um, close to 280 pounds at that point, too. Um, Mace Funa, I think, could definitely put his hand in the dirt and play as a defensive end if he wanted to. Um, he's not at the 280, 300-pound mark. I think I think Funa and Ma'ai and Shipley, though, I'm curious to see how those three are, are employed in particular because those guys have almost exclusively played standing up in previous years i don't know how well that transition works with some of the stuff we saw with georgia um just because you think of the athletes that they had running side to side and i don't look at those three guys as guys i necessarily think can can play space in space side down the sideline quite the same way um as you would like an adrian jackson who i think by the way that's a big good fit for him in terms of he fits sort of what you saw with a lot of those georgia linebackers i think Braden swinson can, can also kind of I know he's a little heavier in build. Maybe he leans down a little bit. Maybe he maybe he goes up. I mean, I know when he was recruited, he was recruited as a player who put his hand down and then, again, similar to what we saw with DJ Johnson, um, kind of moved to a standing position because that was more of a fit with what Tim Druder's done. Um, some of this is going to, again, be philosophical in nature, and we don't have clear-cut answers because the coach has not been here long enough to really give them to us. Um, so we don't have a clear answer here, but I do think this is like a really interesting question of what these body types are interesting to me. Um, I think Swinson and DJ make sense. To, I think those guys can put play at the hand of the dirt pretty easily. The other three guys just haven't done it yet. And so I'll be curious to see kind of how they fit. That doesn't mean they won't be utilized. And I wouldn't be surprised to see 
them utilized in a variety of ways. And I think I would expect Dan Landing. One of the questions I do want to ask is just how much of your defense is going to be this is defense driven and how much is going to be personnel driven? Like how creative and, and multiple are you willing to get based upon different styles and, and talents you have on the roster? So, um, but a lot, a lot of kind of pack there. I, I just don't know if we have an answer is my I guess my, my long winded way of saying it. Yeah, it's, I'm not sure yet of, of how we're going to move around players and where they're going to line up. Um, I, I think that's probably what makes – it's going to what make this defense so tough and what's probably made Georgia's defense under Dan Landing so tough is position versatility because what was like one of the staples for Dan Landing at Georgia that they brought a ton of pressures from all over the football field. And I, I think you look at Oregon and you say they probably can do some of some of the things that Georgia was doing from a, a schematic pressure or a schematic standpoint because they have the position versatility. Like you said, Eric, Mace Funa could be a defensive end. And then on the next play, he's got the athletic ability to be like an outside linebacker and drop into coverage or or to attack. Uh, the line of scrimmage from a different spot on the football field and, or a Trevor in my eye is another one that, that fits that, that type of mold. Um, I would almost argue Braden Swinson too. Um, DJ Johnson for sure. So I, I, I think you look at these, these guys and kind of like the offense, like we're going to learn a lot of these questions that their answers at spring football, when, when Oregon staff is able to get on the field with its players and actually roll through different schemes, different plays, different formations to, to figure out what best suits Oregon. And that's the biggest thing is, yes, you want to be able to 100% replicate what Georgia was doing on defense now at Oregon. That would make the most simple sense. But if it if it's like putting a, a square peg through a round hole, you got to adapt. And I think that's gonna be that's where we're at right now is Oregon's trying to figure out that hey, do we have the pieces in place now to replicate and do exactly what what we want to do, or are we gonna have to tweak a couple things to to maybe get the same end result, but they come in different manners, like not to flip it back to the offense. Like everyone wants to know what the offense is running. Like, and, and Dillingham may have this desire of, Hey, I want to, I want to be running three wide, four wide wide receiver sets all the time, but they don't have the depth for that. And what if Oregon's two best or, or what if Oregon's four best receivers, what if three of those, of those guys are tight ends? Or what if, what if, out of your four best receivers, Troy Franklin, Dante Thornton, Seven McGee, and a tight end are your four best pass catchers. But you also realize you have to have Byron Cardwell on the field at, at, you know, at all times, or a C.J. Verdell, or maybe Die comes back. Well, now all of a sudden you're, you're going to be running two wide receiver, one tight end, and two running back sets. So like that could flip over to the defensive side of the ball too. Like, hey, we've got – three elite defensive tackles on this team. We need to be able to have all three of them on the football field as often as we can. 
that could dictate what they do with everybody else. So I think spring ball will have a lot of these answers. To go back to the question, um, where it says landing seems to like big defensive linemen who are 280 to 300 pounds and fast linebackers who are 225 to 240. Um, if Oregon could recruit five stars from Georgia and Alabama and the South, they too would like those types of players. So that is, you know, it's, it's a blessing for Georgia to have those kind of players in their backyard and to have the type of success that they've had because they, they can recruit these guys rather easily. Um, Oregon has their handful of just natural talents and, and pure athletic specimens on the team. Um, but this, this, this list, this Mace Funa, Trevin Mai, Jake Shipley, um, DJ Johnson and Braden Swinson, those, those are guys who are the tweeners like um, Smucker Ben asked. And, those guys all have – they Oregon has to figure out what to do with those guys specifically. And this is a really good question about it um, because I can anticipate either all of these guys gaining weight in terms of you know putting a hand down and potentially playing a defensive end role, or I could see all of these guys losing weight and trying to shift them into a hybrid linebacker, maybe a hand down type of role that you saw uh, like Kayvon Thibodeau play sometimes this year, and which was a shame. He should have always had a hand down on the line. But – um, I look at someone like Jake Shipley. I think he's a candidate to bulk up. I think he's better suited to, to be a pass rusher. Um, I like a Trevin Mai, and I think he's also another candidate to be a, a pass rusher edge setter on defense, which is kind of what he was last year. Uh, I don't know if he has lateral mobility to do what a Dan Lanning defense does with their linebacker and core. Same with Mace Funa. I think Braden Swinson could slim down and become one of those because he's just a pure athlete. Um, I don't necessarily know, as we saw last year, he has a great speed rush, but I don't necessarily know if he has anything more than that in terms of his power rush or bull rush. And if you can slim him down, you eliminate the need to really you know, have a bull rush for him to develop that because now he's sort of an outside linebacker, um, right outside linebacker role where he's in coverage or he's, or he's blitzing or he's you know dropping back and man-to-man on a tight end which I think he's something that he can do at his size and length. And for DJ Johnson, I think this year he'll potentially become a full defensive end. Um, I think Oregon's tight end room is pretty good. Um, they're going to miss him on offense in terms of his blocking because although DJ Johnson caught one pass this year as a tight end against Ohio State, um, his blocking was instrumental to some of Oregon's success. And without him, um, the final three games towards the regular season, you saw that Oregon's rushing offense was pretty good, but it wasn't where it was. And that can also be related to DJ Johnson. It could be really Johnny Johnson and Jalen Red and their top wide receiver blockers going out too. But I think his best natural talent is lining up with a hand in the ground on defense um, and bulking him up to that 275, 280 range and keeping his natural athleticism um, and developing him a little bit more under Lanning and Tony Tuioti. Um, I think it's going to be, it's going to be really helpful for an Oregon team that lacks a pure pass rusher, especially in the absence of Kayvon Thibodeau. So there are a lot of players who I think could play both sides of the, or not both sides of the ball, but both ways were in terms of hand in the ground, dropping back into coverage and a lot outside linebacker type. Um, I'm interested to see what they'll do with Noah Sewell. I think they'll keep him as a linebacker specifically, but without a pure pass rusher, I'm 
kind of under the impression that they're going to use him as extra help a lot. And I'm not sure if they're going to play him in that, uh, that outside linebacker role where he's primarily a pass rusher off the edge because I think he has a great combination of speed and power. Or if they're going to put him where he, where he has played the last couple of seasons, that Mike linebacker spot or that will linebacker spot and let him be a full-time linebacker. Um, I think they're going to have to get creative and it starts with specific body types and specific play, player skill levels. Um, but this is another, another topic that is going to have to wait until spring ball until we see something set in stone and really have an idea of what's going to happen. I can't wait to watch practice guys. It's, yeah. it's been a long time since we've been able to do it. It's one of my favorite parts of the job is, is going out there with the clipboard and, and the notepad and just marking down who's working with which groups. I think, from a personnel perspective, the first week or so of, of spring ball, assuming Dan lets us in, Dan, let us in. If, if, if there's any way you hear this podcast, <laughs> we want to watch, we want to see what you're, we want to get an idea. Um, because I think as we've established, there's a lot of guys positionally that'll be interesting to see where they line up, what groups are working with on both sides of the football. So I think that's a good way to end that. We're going to get into a couple of basketball questions. Um, I want to kind of combine these um, because they're very similar. Um, let's start with this one from at ZB Green One. Was the SoCal trip an aberration, or has the team clicked similar to previous St. Altman teams? If so, why are they playing so much better? Hashtag odds and audibles. Um, Matt, let's just let's start here uh, in terms of what's going on. Uh, this was a pretty impressive week. This followed, I think, a couple of weeks where they played a little bit better as well. So it seems like they, there is definitely improvement. Are we buying this as a full-on the Dana Altman second half of the season run is beginning, or is this, are you still concerned about some things? Um, yes and no. I, I, you have to acknowledge the fact that they went and should have dominated two top five teams. I mean, they were the better team in both games and, uh, but they also did it without fans. I think that has to be acknowledged. Um, the atmospheres at USC and UCLA were anything but hostile. Um, USC traditionally doesn't have a large home crowd. They don't really have a home environment. But even then, it, you know, if you get three or four or 5,000 people in that arena, you know, it, it will make some noise. And there was like 200 people in that arena. Poly Pavilion certainly would have been hostile. Um, but the way that they played in those two games, I don't think it would have mattered if the fans were there. So you look at this team and, and you see one that's now won, uh, what is it, five games in a row? Um, mm -hmm. th that's that's good. And you, you just don't stumble into that, especially when three of those have come on the road, um, one of them being at Oregon State. They had a really good win against Utah um, when they when they won 79-66. So I, I think this team is starting to turn the corner. Now, I'll be curious to see how they, they handle their next four games. Um, they play Washington State on Thursday. They play Washington on Sunday. And then a week from tomorrow, they play Colorado at home in a, a makeup game. Um, that was supposed to be on the 30th of December. And then they host Oregon State for the second time in basically two and a half weeks. Um, you, you almost, if, if they're as good as we all hope they are, and 
some people are saying they are and that they're back. They go 4-0 in that stretch. You, you can't lose at home, especially to these teams. I mean, Colorado is a solid piece. Uh, they're 12-4 on the year. They're 4-2 in the league. They're outside of the NCAA tournament, but they're kind of one of those, well, if they get some good, impressive wins, they could get their way in. Um, Washington State and Washington are not good. The Huskies are 8-7, and 3-2 and three, three and two in Pac-12 play. Cougars, they're 10-7. and seven. They're 3-3 three and three in Pac-12 play. And then Oregon State's just flat out bad. They're 3-13 and 13 on the year. They're 1-5 uh, in Pac-12 play. Their only win being against Utah, who's even worse uh, than them in Pac-12 play. Um, so I, I look at this and say they got to go 4-0. and And ideally, look, most important thing is win. But ideally over these four games, you kind of want to expect – two, maybe even three of them being games where it's not uh, a a concern at the end of the game of who wins. I Yeah, 100%. With four home games after a five-game winning streak, especially over two top five opponents, you you would look to say that Oregon was going to win all four of those games. Um, I won't say that they have to, but it's as pretty close as it gets to saying you should probably win all four of those games, especially at home against lesser competition and against two of your rivals. Um, those are huge momentum boosters after they've already had a lot of momentum already. Um, to me, the USC game was much more impressive than the UCLA game. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Against UCLA, there were still uh, – there was a really hard-fought game. Both teams battled their, their butts off and – you know, Oregon ultimately remained on top um, after a stellar overtime period. But there are still a lot of moments of what made this Oregon team so frustrating to watch towards the end, um, whether it's the turnover late underneath the basket with a couple seconds left on the clock to tie the game. Um, just silly turnovers. Um, uh, the the whole first half, the the, the pure inability to, to, to make a shot, um, which has plagued Oregon over and over and over again this season, just – Wide open looks, great ball movement, layups, things like that, where you just they just couldn't knock them down. Um, and then things started to flip in the second half. They came out and hit um, their first five threes, I believe. Um, I know for a fact it was their first four. I think they hit their fifth attempt as well later in the half. But those were all open looks too. It was all um, either great ball movement to the top of the key to like Eric Williams or Jacob Young. Or is Will Richardson making his own shot and and hitting off the dribble, which is something he has shown pretty well in the last couple of games. Um, so the the second half against UCLA and oh the overtime period is what flew into the USC game, where Oregon truly dominated the Trojans. Um, that game it got down to ten or eight points at, at towards the end of the second half or the end of the game, but that was completely dominated by Oregon. Um, that's the team you expected to see early in the season. Um, it's a fully healthy squad. It's now a confident squad. And after UCLA, Will Richardson has said that things have started to click. Um, I think they really clicked in overtime. Will Richardson found a shot. He found his confidence, a lot of confidence too, not just like, oh, I think I can make this. He's like, I can make these shots. And most importantly, um, Jacob Young now feels the same way. And with him on the team, as a secondary scorer, um, he could do it in all facets, just like Richardson can, whether that's transition layups, getting downhill, uh, pull up spot up three pointers, 
um, just making good rotational passes. I think that this team is flowing really well offensively right now. Things have clicked just like they always do with the Dana Altman team. It's like clockwork. You can set your clock to it every single year. Sometime in December or January, Oregon's team is going to find and turn a corner. But, yeah, I, this is just a really impressive road trip to, the, to Los Angeles. Um, the fans thing, I don't I, – I, I don't really buy too much into that. They played the entire season last year without fans. Um, people should should know how to do that and get up for it if they can. Um, but I think moving into this four-game home strip, you know, these are the four games that Oregon should win and, and almost need to at this point. All right, last one from at Duck Wyo Duck. Uh, why is there so little national buzz about Oregon men's basketball beating two top five teams in just three days? Are they not giving the Pac-12 any credibility? Hashtag odds and audibles. Um, the, by the way, the latest polls have come out. The AP poll is out. Oregon had 15 votes, and in the coaches, they had five. Um, overall resumes, though, it's sort of understanding they're not in the top 25, um, considering the fact that they didn't have any quality rims, really, or very, very few that you would really tip your cap on in terms of a resume coming in um i don't know matt do you feel like there's not been enough attention to this i mean it's pretty significant what was this the the first time the pac-12 has ever seen it happen and the first time since 71 maybe or something um i don't know what, what's your take on this yeah i think it's 75 76 since clemson um went back to back in a five-day span to win uh, games over five teams ranked in the top five and oregon did it in three days not just five um it is getting some discussion. I mean, ESPN has Oregon as the team of the week. Um, CBS Sports, they had Oregon as one of the winners of the weekend. Um, I know Gary Parrish, Matt Norlander, Ion Basketball Podcast, they spent some time discussing it, um, the UCLA win. And then they also discussed later on Sunday the USC win. Um, we've seen... Uh, the field of 68, they've discussed uh, instant live reaction of the UCLA win. And then I think they did a, a discussion point on their podcast this week uh, that came out on Sunday or maybe Monday morning about Oregon as well. Um, so there is some discussion out there. Um, I, I didn't think they would be ranked, though. I mean, they've got some really bad losses um, yeah. under their name here. Arizona State at home is is – a quad three loss at home. That's bad. That's going to weigh you down significantly. Um, they lost by 30 plus to BYU and Houston. Um, that can't happen. And, and so the fact that they're receiving votes is a good thing. It's people noticed it. And I think you also though have to factor in there weren't crowds. So while it counts as a road win, it's not a, what a normal road win would look like they, you know, they didn't have to fight through the adversity of playing against a home crowd. And I think that maybe weighs a little bit on it. And then, yeah, I mean, I, the PAC 12 isn't good and, you know, hasn't been good for quite some time. And last year they, they sent all those teams to lead eight. They had a team in the final four and all off season, they've talked about how, this was going to be, you know, a, a continuation of last year. And yes, they had three teams in the top six last week, Arizona, UCLA, USC. 
Well, USC lost twice last week. They haven't really played anybody on their schedule. Now they're playing conference games. They're starting to lose. UCLA has played two teams of importance in non-con. They beat a Villanova team who's pretty good. And then they got absolutely waxed by Gonzaga. Um, Arizona is good. They have one loss on the year, which was, I believe, at Illinois. Um, but mm-hmm. the teams that were supposed to be good, Oregon, they, they have floundered out of, out of the jump. Washington State was supposed to be a team the league was hyping up as a, a potential tournament team. I thought they would be. They're not good. Oregon State was a team that went to the Elite Eight, and they they lose their best player in Ethan Thompson, yes. Uh, and Reichel doesn't come back as well. But everybody else from that team is back, and they've won three games this year. They are they are hugely disappointing um, from, a, from a, a preseason expectation. Stanford is not where they are supposed to be. So ASU is not where they are supposed to be. Um, so this league has, they've not, once again, they haven't done their job in non-con and they didn't win a, lot, a bunch of big games. And so it's going to be tough sledding for this league to become the focal point of a discussion point for a week uh, for, for another season. Yeah, Matt, <laughs> you hit the nail on the head there. It's um, why is there no real national buzz? Um, it's because it's the, it's the Pac-12. Um, these are games where technically Oregon should be losing. You know, these are two top five teams in the country at home against an unranked Oregon team who, while they do have talent, they aren't ranked. They're, they've had a, an up-and-down season. They've been disappointing, frankly, um, considering their preseason expectations. Um, and UCLA is – was, and I guess you could still say, is a national champion contender. Um, they were right there last year. This is, um, this, yeah, this is a Pac-12 issue at, at, at its whole. Um, it's really great for Oregon to have two top five wins on the road. That's great for the resume. That's um, hugely important for trying to get into tournament. And they do deserve some more buzz, but um, it kind of says a lot of things about the Pac-12 more than it does about um more than it does about Oregon's talent. Um, like literally all the reasons that Matt just outlined. Um, this has been a rather disappointing year for the Pac-12 in general. Um, and it doesn't get more disappointing than your two of your top three teams from a national perspective, losing at home, getting beat by a, a disappointing Oregon team on national television. And that's another factor. Um, UCLA was played at 9.30 Eastern Standard Time, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and the USC win was played at 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So most of the country lives on the East Coast, and I could tell you that not a lot of people stayed up for those games. Um, so all the, you know, ESPN, Bristol, Connecticut, you know, New York City, um, all those little little towns in Connecticut, um, that, that's where those those people who get paid to watch the sports live and, and work. Um, they're probably not staying up for all these games. And that's just what happens when you play in the Pac-12. Um, so you, you might not get as much publicity as uh, a team who, who beats Duke, uh, who goes to Illinois and wins uh, whenever Florida State's really good. Um, teams like that. Um, and that's, you know, that's been an issue with the Pac-12 for a long time and, and, and their seeds getting, you know, 
underseeded for the tournament, not enough eyes on them. Um, and that's just what happens. It's a, it's a Pac-12 issue. They're not on national TV enough. Um, and I can go to football too. But yeah, I, I, those are the reasons to me why this isn't getting enough buzz. Um, I think it's gotten it's gotten some good buzz within the Oregon community. Now people are going to start to pay attention to the to both teams um, because the women's have an opportunity to beat uh, you know two straight top ten teams as well, uh, starting on, on Monday against UConn. Um, so that that'll be a, a nationally televised game at a normal hour too. So that'll be a good brand rep- representation right there for Oregon. So yeah, Pac-12, this is what, what frustrated me about the uh, USC game. What was the lead up? What game was the lead up for Oregon USC on FS1 Saturday night? That forced know. Oregon to tip off at eight o'clock at night. I don't even know. Sea biscuit. Oh yeah. What FS1 game. was showing a movie. Sea <laughs> biscuit. Back twelve baby. Lead up to Oregon playing USC. I mean, why that game had to be played at eight o'clock is beyond me. I mean, I guess you could argue, well, they didn't want to compete against the NFL playoffs. Well, guess what? Like, it doesn't really matter what time you're playing it at because you just – the people that are going to watch that game are going to watch that game even if the playoffs are going on or not going on. So there was no point in, in, in playing it at 8 o'clock. And basically, what person on the East Coast just went, oh, man, I watched a great NFL game. It's now 11.15 Saturday night. You know what? I'm just going to sit here at home and I'm not going to go out or I'm not going to go to bed. I'm going to watch Oregon USC. Two teams I have probably very little connection to to see them play. You know, Put that game on at 6 o'clock or, or 7 o'clock even. And that's where I, I think a lot of people out West get frustrated is you're not gaining anything by playing the game even later into the night from an East coast perspective. And so just do away with it and and put your product on a time that fits ideally for your, that region. The game is being played in instead of at eight o'clock at night and allowing a movie that's over 15 years old to be played, maybe even older than that to, 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 to play. Toby Maguire has never been better. <laughs> never. Never. All right, that's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audibles podcast. Thank you so much for submitting your questions. Thank you for listening to the show. We'll be back Wednesday. Maybe more basketball talk, depending upon what happens later today with Oregon-UConn. Maybe some Oregon football recruiting. Maybe more news on just Oregon's roster in general. Until then, you've been listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace.